Here on Emirates Well, we're going to talk diamonds, not just any diamonds, but one very special one, the famous Kohinoor diamond. And it's a story of greed, murder, torture, colonialism, and appropriation. Joining me here in the Emirates Well studio, hot foot from the Festival of Literature, is William Dalrymple, co-author of the book entitled Kohinoor, The History of the World's Most Infamous Diamond. Now, William, I described the Kohinoor as famous. You use the word infamous. What's, which, which one's correct? Well, I think both are probably correct. It's certainly famous. Um, and it's very interesting to look at the history of, in a sense, how it became famous, because it wasn't always famous. Let's start at the very beginning. Yeah. For, for those people that don't know about the Kohinoor diamond, tell us a little bit about it, where it came from and where it is now. Well, that is, is a long and complicated story. And um, one of the reasons for writing this book is that the whole question of where it came from, when it was mined, uh, who originally owned it, are deeply contentious issues to which there are no clear answers. The traditional story, which exists on Wikipedia and in the many books and articles over the centuries which have been written, goes something like this. It was mined in darkest antiquity, in the deep cavernous diamond mines of, uh, of Golconda, uh, was put into the eye of an idol in, uh, in a, a, a temple in the Kakatiya dynasty of, of southern India, only to be looted by the wicked Kalji Turks who came down from Delhi, burnt everything. Then they lost it to the Lodis, who lost it to the Tukluks, who lost it to the Mughals. And it remained with the Mughals until Muhammad Shah Rangila hid it in his turban uh, when the Persian warlord Nadir Shah came plundering through Delhi. Unfortunately, they were both sleeping with the same courtesan, and the courtesan revealed the hiding place inside Muhammad Shah's turban. So when Nadir Shah left Delhi, he embraced Muhammad Shah and says, my brother, uh, let us swap turbans as a sign of brotherhood. And so it was, according to this legend, uh, that the Kohinoor ended up in Persia. Now, it turns out that not a single one of, uh, of those incidents that I just mentioned ever happened, or certainly there's no historical truth for any of them. There's actually no record of the Kohinoor, of what is definitely the Kohinoor, at any point before 1750. And at that point, it's found at the top of the most expensive piece of furniture ever made, which was the peacock throne, made by Shah Jahan, the same guy that uh, built the Taj Mahal. And it contained the entire Mughal jewel collection, which was the greatest jewel collection ever amassed. And it cost four times the cost of the Taj Mahal to put together. And it, this, it was this, like a kiosk, but beaten solid gold, studded with the world's greatest gems. And in the accounts of the building of it, the Mughals don't mention the Kohinoor because they loved rubies. Rubies and spinels, particularly, these red stones were the things that the Mughals regarded as the ultimate in, in gemstones. Uh, and it's only a later taste from Europe that, in a sense, elevated diamonds to be the supreme gem of all. And the first mention we actually get of the Kohinoor is, by, is, is when Nadir Shah has taken it, looted it from Delhi, and put it on display in Herat. And one of his chroniclers in 1750 makes the first reference to the Kohinoor, the mountain of light, which he says is in the eye of the peacock at the top of the peacock throne. Did it look then like the Kohinoor diamond we know today? Not at all. It was far bigger, um, but much more unshapely. The Mughals, like medieval princes in Europe, liked... Um, Cabuchons liked uncut gems in their raw, rounded, 
unsymmetrical uh, glory of, of, of how they emerged from the earth. If you go to one of the great medieval treasuries of, uh, of Europe, uh, the, the cathedral treasuries like St. Mark's in, in Venice or uh, Hagia Sophia in, in, in uh, Byzantium, you'll find this taste for enormous uh, gems just shoved in, uncut, glistening in, in, in their full sort of bumpy cauliflower-like wonder. Um, and that was what the Mughals liked, their gems. But by the 18th century, probably originally invented in India, but then shipped to Europe and made most popular by Venetian and Amsterdam gem cutters, the Brilliant Cut. And the Brilliant Cut is a symmetrical cut of a diamond that, in a sense, brings out the fire within. And when one thinks of a diamond now in, uh, in, the, in the West, one thinks always of a diamond cut. It's that sparkly, symmetrical shape with all the facets. Uh, and we very rarely see an uncut diamond at all. Uh, you know, if, you go to, if you go to the jewelers today to get an engagement ring for your girlfriend, uh, there will only be these brilliant cuts of different sizes on display. Uh, but uh, this was a 19th century or 18th century innovation. The idea that you gave a, a brilliant cut diamond to a girl when you got married is, is a, is a mid-19th century English idea. And for, the, and for the moguls, they just liked their stones as they were in the raw. And when the Kohinoor first arrived in England in 1849, people were disappointed in it because it didn't do what a diamond was meant to do to Victorian eyes. Diamonds were meant to be sparkly things, beautifully cut and perfectly symmetrical. And the Kohinoor was far from symmetrical. Its name, the Mountain of Light, came from the fact that, well, it was a sort of mountainous size compared to any other gem in the world. But it was also looked a bit like a mountain. It had a sort of, you know, high domed peak with the sort of, you know, slopes running off in different directions in an unsymmetrical fashion. Um, and when it was first put on display by Prince Albert at the Great Exhibition in 1851, half, uh, no, literally one third of Britain paid to go to the Great Exhibition. It was the first big national tourist attraction in, in history. Uh, but people were disappointed because it didn't glitter, as, as they'd been led to believe. And they'd expected this massive Indian gem, you know, beams of razor-like light shooting out of it, and it didn't do it. And Prince Albert de desperately tried to sort of, you know, come up with a thing. So he built a sort of tent with gas lamps behind, but all he succeeded in doing was creating Britain's first sauna. And all these Victorian ladies would go and then faint from the heat. <laughs> <laughs> so. So it wasn't a disaster. But how did it come to get to Britain? Because that's re really rather contentious, isn't it? That's hugely contentious. And uh, it's, the, it's the most delicate part of the story. First, I should perhaps say how it got, how it, what happened to it after... So it went from, from India, the Mughal uh, throne, to Persia. Nadir Shah was assassinated, went to Afghanistan. Uh, the dynasty in Afghanistan that held it were overthrown in one of the later coups in Afghanistan, fled to the Punjab, so came back to India, where it was seized by Ranjit Singh, the Sikh leader. And he wore it as an armlet. He shoved it on his arm in, a, in a, what's called a bazuband, uh, which is a way of strapping a beautiful gem to your arm. And he wore the Timur ruby on one arm, and he wore the Kohinoor on the other. And this is the first time the British see this stone on Ranjit Singh's arm. And they eye it up, and it's in many travellers' accounts, and it begins to assume the status of, of this sort of unique gemstone at this period, when the British are peering at it enviously in this, among the Sikh jewels. Then there are the two Anglo-Sikh wars, and in 1849, uh, Governor-General Dalhousie, who's an incredibly aggressive, uh, ambitious, he's a kind of Boris Johnson of the 19th century, uh, he wants to be Foreign Secretary. 
And he, although he's an employee of the East India Company, a private corporation, he unilaterally decides to give the Koh-i-Noor to Queen Victoria, partly, one suspects, with a view, obviously, to becoming foreign secretary. It's a familiar, uh, familiar, ambitious young politician throwing everybody else under the bus to get their own way forward. And um, so he, the, the, the diamond is, is as an article of surrender in the Treaty of Lahore in 1849, the third article of the treaty between the defeated Sikhs and the victorious East India Company is that the diamond, known as the Kohinoor, will be given by the Maharaja to Queen Victoria. And so the, the diamond is sent overseas. It has, wherever it goes, this diamond creates trouble. I've, I've given you a very sanitized version, but the book has the full Game of Thronesy horror of people having their eyes gouged out, molten lead poured over their heads, poisoned by white lead, a whole variety of incredibly, one woman has, has her head crushed in by bricks oh uh, by her hand ladies who are bribed to do this. And then even when, the, when it's sent overseas, to Britain on a, on a steam sloop, you'd have thought, you know, entering the, the 19th century industrial revolution world where jadu magic and so on is, is, is long, far from it. Uh, the, the cholera breaks out on the ship within a day, half the crew die, and then hits a typhoon. <laughs> limps into Portsmouth six months later uh, with some broken masted and sort of uh, half falling to bits. And the day it enters British water, the Prime Minister Robert Peel is thrown from his horse on Constitution Hill and trampled under the horse. Then the day it's given to Queen Victoria, a madman rushes out of the crowd with a gold-tipped plane and wallops her over the head. So she receives the Koh-i-Noor, she writes in her diary, with a black eye and stitches. So it's, 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 a, it's a very... Uh, uh, there's this ancient Indian myth beginning at the time of the Bhagavad Puran in about 1000 BC that diamonds, if they are not completely flawless, can bring as much bad luck as good fortune to their owners. And certainly the Koh-i-Noor has consistently brought, <laughs> brought bloodshed, division and death wherever it went. I was going to ask you what it was about the Koh-i-Noor that uh, prompted you to write this book, but I think you've just answered that question. <laughs> well, it's a very good story. Uh, it's a non-fiction Game of Thrones. Almost everyone that this diamond comes into contact with suffers some incredibly gruesome end. I didn't include among that Ahmed Shah Abdali, who takes the diamond from Nadia Shah. He gets a, a sort of tumorous carbuncle, which takes over his face. And his first thing is to cover his face in a, in a gold mask with a diamond-studded nose, because his nose has been eaten away by this carbuncle. And by, but this, of course, doesn't stop the rot. And by the end of his life, maggots are dropping out of the mask into his into his food as he's eating. I mean, it's the grimmest imaginable oh. story. Apologies um, if you're having dinner right Sorry now. for eating your meal, but you're listening to this. <laughs> Um, how's your, how's uh, your health these days, by the way? Health is very well, thank you. Oh, it. <laughs> no, no, I've had no close contact with the stone. I get well away from it. <laughs> and based on what you just told me, I think that's very wise advice. So where, where, where is it now? Where can people see it? So it is now in the Tower of London. And the last time it was seen in a ceremonial context was at the Queen Mother's funeral. Uh, no British monarch has actually worn it since uh, Queen Victoria. Uh, partly because of this reputation, it has a cursed gem. And uh, next up is uh, supposedly is is uh, Queen Camilla. Uh, she will, have, if she may have the option of wearing it, if that uh, it doesn't bring <laughs> the dark clouds looming over the royal family, I don't know what will. But um, it's. Uh, but if you go and see it today in the Tower of London you realise what I think British people are largely unaware of, which is what a, a in a sense, a focus that this gem has become for post-colonial um, anger 
among particularly South Asians uh, at the looting of the treasures of South Asia during the Raj. And the Koh-i-Noor embodies this in a single glittering object. And, and in, the, in the way that Koh-i-Noor has throughout its history been a cause for division and dissension. So it remains today. When you go to the Tower of London, you almost not a white face in the crowd. There are hundreds of very angry South Asians. And uh, at some point, the people at the Tower of London installed a conveyor belt, I suspect, to stop sort of South Asians cl- uh, sort of, you know, clustering around it and, uh, and, and sort of beating at the glass. Uh, so what you see instead these days is, is lots of Indians and Pakistanis moonwalking backwards on the conveyor belt to try and keep level and shouting depredations in Hindi and Punjabi, chore, chore, thief, loot, loot, looters. <laughs> <laughs> so I assume um, they want it back. So they want it back very badly. And I think the British don't understand how much anger there is. I think it's growing too. I think it's getting any less. Uh, in the t- 30 years I've lived in India, I think there's a growing awareness. The generation who knew the Raj were so sort of spoon-fed on, on, on British propaganda, however much the nationalists had also been putting the counter-story, that there was always feelings that the British had given them railways and, and so on. As Britain declines in importance uh, internationally and as India rises up, there's, you know, uh, uh, people are looking at this whole issue again and saying, you know, what are our treasures doing in Britain? Why can't we have them back? And of all the treasures, the one they matter most about is the Koh-i-Noor. But it's not just India. Uh, there are six countries that currently have a legal, uh, uh, put in a legal claim to the diamond, as well as India, Pakistan, uh, on the basis that it used to be in Lahore. Uh, it was Rajat Singh who made it famous, uh, and Lahore is now part of uh, Pakistan. Bangladesh claims it. Iran claims it because Nadia Shah took it. Afghanistan claims it because Ahmed Shah Abdali, the founder of Afghanistan, had it, the guy with the maggots and the, and the nose t- uh, carbuncle. Uh, and most recently, and perhaps most surprisingly, the Taliban have claimed it. Uh, Mullah Omar, uh, not previously known for his fondness for diamonds or bling, uh, uh, put in a, a, a claim for it. So the legal position is that laws presumably drafted by the British and other colonial powers themselves, uh, that uh, only loot since the 20th century, in, within the 20th century and beyond, needs to be returned. So, for example, Nazi uh, Jewish pictures stolen by the Nazis in World War II by law have to be given back to their original owners if they're found. But uh, the colonial powers who drafted the UN Constitution, presumably with their own museum collections in mind, uh, uh, did not include uh, backdate this um, uh, the stipulation. So I assume from what you're saying, the British government is in no great rush to return the Cohen or to any of the potential claimants. I think the British government is helped by the fact that there are six claimants. And so if there was just one clear claimant, uh, like the Indian government, for example, um, then in a sense it would be a more complicated issue. And, and I, I half suspect that probably Theresa May looking for friends in this post-Brexit world might be quite tempted to give it back. Uh, but it isn't just one. Uh, the first actually to put in claim was was, uh, was um, not Jinnah, was uh, uh, Zulfika Ali Bhutto, the Prime Minister of Pakistan, who put in the claim in 1973 during the winter of discontent uh, to uh, James Callaghan. Uh, and uh, there's a very diplomatic reply in the in the PRO in the in the National Archives, um, basically saying no, <laughs> keeping it, <laughs> but saying it very nicely. <laughs> Uh, and I think um, at the moment the British have no intention and no legal obligation 
uh, to give it back. But this is a growing uh, issue around the world. I don't know whether you've seen that movie that came out this week, Black Panther, that has broken all records at the box office. That has a scene where some uh, uh, in this mythical uh, kingdom, uh, they uh, some of the people go to the uh, to a British museum and steal back uh, things that look like a Benin head and an axe head, uh, which has been looted by colonials. So I think this issue of, of colonial loot uh, is a very important one. And I think one of the tragedies of modern Britain is that imperial history is not taught. So British people are largely unaware of what their ancestors have done and are in no position, in a sense, to, uh, to join an argument about, about the British Empire, good or bad, um, because they just don't know it. When you go to study even A-level history today, you study the Nazis, you study Tudors, you study um, uh, Queen Victoria, but you do not study the British Empire. And I think it's very important people learn that uh, you know the British have an extremely complicated role in world history. And uh, I don't believe it's entirely a black and entirely negative role, but there are nonetheless many atrocities associated with the British Empire. Uh, a huge curtailment of freedoms, massive looting and plundering, and, and the British should know that. But instead, in our history lessons, the only people who are racist are the, are the Nazis, and we liberate the Nazis. So the implication is that we're sort of champions of freedom. Not sadly the case. Just before we sign off, we must mention your co-author, Anita Anand. Uh, now, William, you live in India, Anita lives in London. So how did you cooperate on, on this particular project? So the, this diamond had glittered at the back of both our previous books. It appears very briefly in my book, Return of the King, about the first Afghan war and the great game. And it appeared in Anita's book on Sophia Dulip Singh, uh, the daughter of Dulip Singh, uh, who was the last Indian man to have the, uh, the, uh, the diamond and who signed it over to Queen Victoria by force after the Second Sikh War. And so we both realised that from our different points of view and our, and our different um, documents that we dug out of the archives, that the accepted version of Diamond's history um, was, to use a technical term, bullshit. Uh, that there was absolutely no historical evidence for a lot of the claims being made for this diamond. And that, uh, uh, it, it, that in fact, there's, there's uh, uh, remarkably little uh, that can be said with certainty about this diamond before about 1750. Uh, so <clears throat> we decided to collaborate, and uh, the Brit wrote the Indian history, and the Indian wrote the British history. <laughs> so it, it, some some e equity there, and we were thrilled when we were researching it. And uh, I would always, you know, get up in the morning and start, and be longing to ring her up because she would she would not be up till uh, lunchtime, uh, Indian time, because um, she'd be waking up in London. I'd say, you can't believe what I've just found. She said, no, I found something even more grisly. <laughs> we compare atrocities at breakfast. Uh, so we wrote our two halves separately. And we, um, we, I sort of passed the baton to her at the death of Ranjit Singh, the lion of the Punjab, Sheri Punjab. Uh, and she takes the story through to the current day. Uh, so we've done neatly two halves. Fantastic. William, it's been great talking to you here Thank on Emirates World. It's all fascinating stuff. If we whetted your appetite, you can read the full account of the history of this most famous or indeed infamous gem, the Kohinoor, the history of the world's most infamous diamond. The co-authors, as I said, are William Dalrymple, my guest here, and Anita Anand. It's published by Bloomsbury. I'm Steve Harvey. This is Emirates World. Thank you. Thank you.